Well, good morning again, and welcome to In-Town Church, and Merry Christmas. It's great to be in worship with you this morning. If you've been with us during the Advent season, we've been going through a series called The Psalms or Songs of Hope, and this morning we're looking at Psalm 2. You can follow along in your uh, bulletin. This is the fifth lesson. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron, and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. In our family, we're always looking for movies that the entire family can enjoy, not just the kids, but mom and dad as well. And one that was a surprise that we all enjoyed was How to Train Your Dragon. It came out a year or two ago. And the story is basically the story of this mythical Scandinavian village that has constant conflict, constant battle with dragons. It's the story of Vikings against dragons. And there's a young hero, his name uh, is Hiccup. And he and his dad don't have the best of relationship. His dad is very stoic, very distant, while Hiccup is more tender, more poetic, more affectionate, more open to new ideas. Well, he becomes friends with a particular dragon, one of the most dangerous kinds of dragons. And he proposes an idea to the village and to his dad that maybe Vikings shouldn't be killing dragons anymore. Maybe they should love these dragons and befriend the dragons. And of course, he embarrasses his father and the whole village freaks out about this idea. Their whole life has been revolving around defending themselves against dragons and going on hunts for dragons. And so they mock him and shun him. But at the end of the day, though it was dangerous, it turned out to be a great blessing for the Vikings and also for the dragons, obviously. They're no longer being killed by the Vikings. It took a while for this idea to catch on, but it turned out to be good for everyone involved. The Psalms are a bit like that story. Not that there's dragons and Vikings, but that there's comfort and blessing mixed with great disorientation and unsettling pictures of who God is and how he acts in his world. We get a picture of God that in the middle of hope, in the middle of offer, offers of redemption is a bit unnerving. And maybe we say, well, I don't know if I want to follow a God like that. Give me the Christmas card, God. I'm fine with that, but not a God that causes fear and trembling. 
the one whose poetry says that he dashes his enemies to pieces. Did you catch that as we read? Don't know if I can believe in that kind of God. It's dangerous and unsettling. It's a very dangerous idea to believe in our culture of a God who dashes his enemies to pieces, who's dangerous. But I would submit to you, however, that though it sounds very threatening on first pass, and in some ways it most certainly is, if we'll deal with God as he is, as he reveals himself, rather than how we want to, we expect him or want him to be, if we'll wrestle with even the difficult and confusing parts of the Bible, like Psalm 2, that it will become a, a source of great blessing for us. As we read this passage, we see two things. One is a diagnosis of the human condition, a diagnosis of what's wrong with us spiritually, and then directions towards a life of blessing. So we're going to look just at diagnosis and directions. But before we do that, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to encounter you, and I pray that we would. It is unsettling to consider that we may not be the types of people that we fashion ourselves to be, that we think that we are, the way that we posture ourselves before others. Lord, it's never easy to go to the doctor awaiting a diagnosis, not knowing for certain that it's not going to be terrible, awful news. And as we are diagnosed by this passage, there's some some bad news, bad news about who we are and the way that we set ourselves up against you. But Father, I pray that we would also look and follow the directions, the directions that lead to redemption, the directions that lead to hope, the directions that lead to the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would take hold of both of these, and would you be with us as we, as we do so. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, we use a little bit newer passage, but maybe you are familiar with the older version of this. Why do the nations rage against God? One of the primary diagnoses of this text is that in all of us, that there is a raging against God, a conspiring against God. In fact, that's our biggest spiritual problem, that there is a rage in us, a conspiring in us against God. And maybe you say, well, okay, you've already lost me because I don't have outbursts of anger at God. He doesn't make me angry so much that I clench my fist and grit my teeth and so forth. But that's not exactly what David is talking about here. This type of rage can actually be quite calm. It can look on the surface quite zen-like in its appearance. Rage here, or conspiring, is not outburst of anger, but it's a committed opposition to God. It's a clenched fist at the very center of the person that says, I will not bow before God. And it says that the people's plot in vain, that there is not only raging, but there is a a deliberate, strategic conspiring and plotting. There's a thoughtful resistance to God and his anointed, his son, his Messiah. Now, this takes shape in two ways. One one is that we see resistance to his rule. There's a raging or a conspiring against God that takes the form of resisting his authority in our lives. It says that the nations say, let us break their chains. Let us throw off their shackles. They see the rule of God. They see his assertion of authority in entirely negative terms, that it's in fact slavery to submit to God, and therefore they rage against him. They plot against God. And 
Of course, if we see God's authority, if we see his assertion of rule in our lives as coercive, as enslaving, then it makes sense to get as far away from him as possible. His assertion of authority, if it's seen as offensive, as stifling, as oppressive, then of course it's going to create a clenched fist in our heart to say, no, I will not submit. I will not relent of my own authority and give it over to you. And we see this type of rage that does become almost an anger, anger, almost a seething rage against God. If you've noticed some of the recent books that have made the bestseller list, some of the books by Dawkins and Hitchens and others that are very well thought out, but they're basically meant to disprove the concept of God. But it's at the bottom of what they're saying. They're saying it with this seething anger. It's as if to say, I don't believe in God, and I'm also very angry at him. We see this sort of rage, this resistance to rule and authority, because it's seen as coercive, as enslaving, as fearful. There's a resistance, and there's also a refusing to bow to the Son. And this really is the presenting issue. This is what causes the nations in this passage. This is what causes you and I to rage, to conspire against God. It's a refusal to bow to the Son. This psalm is basically a coronation ceremony. God is setting up His Son as His rightful ruler, and a refusal to bow to the Son is a refusal to bow to God Himself. And the Gospels and the New Testament tell the story that this coronation ceremony is the coronation of the true King, of the Messiah, of Jesus Himself. It's Jesus whose inheritance is the nations, whose possessions are the the ends of the earth, that he is the true king, the son of God, the only begotten, the son of Mary. And his coronation, his enthronement as the true king of the world is the issue that presses this rage, uh, that reveals this rage in our hearts. Will you bow to my son is what this psalm is asking of all of us. Will you bow to the Messiah? That's the question at the very center of the Bible. Will you be like the wise men who travel days and weeks to pay homage to the new king? Or will you be like the religious leaders in Israel who want nothing to do with him and drive him to the cross? Will you recognize his victory over sin and death? And will you take refuge in him? Anyone see the Avengers movie this summer? course you did. Everyone in the world, I think, saw that movie once or twice. And there were so many main characters. When I saw the previews, I thought, there's no way this is going to work. It's going to be bloated and slow because they have to tell the story of each of these main characters. But it actually works, and it comes together. And in essence, what the Avengers is, if you look at it from a certain perspective, is a battle between two kings. In the Avengers, one king, Loki, wants to rule the world. And he wants to rule the world for his own purposes. He wants power. He wants mastery over an inferior people, mastery over all of humanity. And he'll cause as much destruction as is necessary to accomplish that goal. But who's in opposition to him? It's his brother, Thor, who's also a king. But his role on earth is more of a guardian. He's come to love humanity. He doesn't see humanity as inferior and only fit for domination. He wants to befriend humanity, to enable us to live and flourish well. 
Loki at one point makes this long speech and he forces everyone to kneel before him and he says, you are made to be ruled. Freedom is an illusion. You're made to serve me. But Loki's rule brings pain and death and suffering. His rule brings about his own glory at the expense of the ruled, at the expense of the people. But Thor, Thor is humanity's guardian. He protects the planet, and his glory is defined not by forcing submission, by coercing people to follow him, but his glory, his, his glory is defined by his love and his affection for the people of earth. Under Loki, earth, the earth dies, but under Thor, it lives. Now, you and I have this innate suspicion, and if you read the Bible, if you read Psalm 2, you'll see that part of the diagnosis is that we have an innate suspicion towards monarchy, towards authority, and especially in the United States, our whole government is based on rejecting the rule of a foreign monarch, that we want to rule ourselves. Now, what if someone, instead of coming like Loki, saying that I will rule over you or else, I will coerce you to rule, I will cause as much destruction as is possible in order to assert my rule? What if someone came and said, I am the true king of the whole world. I made the whole world. All authority is mine, but I give up my status for you. I lay down my life for you. I come to rescue you. Isn't that exactly what Psalm 2, isn't that exactly what the Bible, what the gospel says, that that's the key, that what the Bible is driving at, what Psalm 2 is asking of you, after it diagnoses our spiritual problem, it is saying, take refuge in this son. Take refuge in this true king. Take refuge in the Messiah. That's the clenched fist that Psalm 2 is trying to dislocate. And what's the pitch? What's the invitation? It's not ultimately bow or else. It's take refuge in me. Be rescued by me. Where are we more free than in the embrace of someone else? Where are we more free than in the rule of grace? That's the diagnosis, is that we all have a spiritual problem that is deeply embedded in our hearts, and it's a clenched fist that says no to God. I will live on my own authority and on my own terms, or I'll just let you in just a little bit. The diagnosis is that you and I need refuge. We need salvation. We need to come under the rule of grace of the Son. And how do we do that? Well, it gives us some directions. How do we begin to live out of that refuge, out of that understanding of God's grace? I heard a story once of a birthday party that was thrown for uh, one of the little girls in a kindergarten class, and the girl's mother had gone, you know, out of her way to decorate the room, to provide favors for everyone in the room, and there was, uh, everything was decorated, and everyone had come with hats and so forth. But one of the kindergarten boys was very jealous of this girl's attention. Everyone was focused on her. The room was giving her presence and giving her attention, and he was so jealous that he began to make a scene, trying to redirect the attention that was towards this girl onto himself, and this obnoxious nuisance was becoming, was about to become a disaster and ruin the party. And so one of the mothers walked over to this little boy 
and knelt beside him and turned his chair so that he had to look directly in their eyes and said, Johnny, it's not your party. It's not your party. He was trying to make that scene about himself. He was unwilling to give up attention and focus to this little girl. And don't we often have a very provincial view of life, that we can't see past the end of our own nose, by see past our own interest. And Psalm 2 is seeking to correct this. It's pulling back the curtain on the world's story and saying, here's what's really going on. Here's where the true party is. Here's the real king of the world. And Psalm 2 tells us that the story of the world, when you pull back that curtain, is a coronation ceremony, that God is at work redeeming the world through the coronation of its true king. He doesn't just give us a diagnosis, but he gives us another way to live entirely, a way to live as if the story of the world is not about us. It's not a party for you and I, but it's a party for the true king. It's a party for Jesus, for the Messiah. What does it tell us to do in light of that diagnosis, in light of that story? In verse 10 and 12, it says, serve the Lord with fear and trembling. And again, this is strange directions for our modern ears. This is hard to get our head around it. We like the Christmas card, God, but fear and trembling, is that what God wants from us, cowering before him? Now, I can't make this passage or this part completely palatable. It's meant to be a challenge. It's meant to be very awe-inspiring. But let's clear up a couple of things. When the Bible says, fear the Lord, and it says it quite regularly, it doesn't mean dread like you would dread a bear in the woods. It doesn't mean to be terrified and cower. The Hebrew word is different. It means a reverent awe a reverent awe that leads to, get this, adoration, that those two things in this Hebrew word are combined. We don't have a word like that in English. It's foreign to us to tremble before someone in a way that also draws us to them in love, to fear someone in a way that makes us long to be closer to them. Those are two very different concepts for us, but in this word, the Hebrew Bible brings it together and says, fear the Lord in a way that is to draw us into him, draw us into his embrace. The glory of God, the majesty of his son is meant to inspire awe, but it's also meant to be magnetic, to draw people near. The fear of the Lord is a tender term. It means reverent awe where you come into his embrace, where you come into his welcome and are received by him. This sort of fear leads to glad service, not a coercive service, not an enslaving service, but a service by which you say, I am pleased to serve you. It begins to lead us to see our lives as a party for the real king, for the true king, rather than causing everyone else to throw a party for us. I don't know how your parents did Christmas, but my parents really did it right. And as a kid, I could barely go to sleep on Christmas Eve. My parents were true patrons of the, the American Christmas, the giving of gifts. We had a great time. And even on limited means, they were always able to make sure that Christmas morning 
exceeded our expectations year after year. And it was an event that I look forward to beginning in August when the Sears catalog would come out. I am that old. We would look through the Sears catalog and begin to circle the toys that we wanted. That went on for four months. And I could barely sleep waiting to figure out which one of those things that, or which many of those things my parents had chosen to purchase for us and what would be a surprise. But something happened when I had children. And of course, I still love getting presents. Who doesn't? But now on Christmas Eve, I can barely sleep because I can't wait for my children to open their presents, to open their gifts. My joy is found in theirs. You see, it's, it's scary to think of life as for someone else, as a party that's given for someone else. It's scary to think about life as given as a coronation ceremony for Jesus because we're giving up our rule, we're giving up our rights, we're giving up our authority. We're giving up, in some sense, a real bit of liberty and freedom. But in verse 11, it says that this type of service, this type of fear and trembling leads to what? It leads to celebration. It leads to rejoicing. In the same way that I began to love my kids' opening gifts much more than I loved opening my own gifts, that's the type of thing that's going on. As you and I give over our authority, our rule of our own lives, as we give up that sense, that uh, understanding of liberty and freedom, as we give it over to Jesus, it leads to not a cowering, not a, ter- a, ter- a terror, but it leads to celebration. It leads to rejoicing. Submission, or as it says in the passage, kissing the sun, doesn't just mean giving up your throne and following another set of directions, but it means also finding your redemption. It means also finding the story that you were meant to live in. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. The nations rage. The nations conspire. And it says, you will break them with a rod of iron. But how does the sun ultimately come? How does the Messiah ultimately get coronated? When the true king comes and is coronated, when he is born, he doesn't break them. He doesn't break us, but he redeems us. Jesus comes in vulnerability, willing to be broken by us. There's no other way to have a real relationship with someone without becoming vulnerable to hurt. And what Christmas tells us is that God became breakable, that he became vulnerable, that instead of coming and breaking you to pieces like pottery, he comes and becomes fragile. He allows you and your sin to break him. He allows my sin to break him. God became someone that you and I could hurt. Why? To get us back, to offer us refuge. No other religion, whether secularism or paganism, Eastern Judaism, Islam, no other religion talks about God like that, that God had a body, that he became breakable, that he came and suffered for creation. No other religion says that God loves sinners, that he loves those who fall short instead of those who try and measure up. The mighty king, the mighty Messiah, the king of the world, died for sinners. And on the cross, 
as he is born in a manger and goes to the cross, he takes the place of sinners. He says, my life for yours. He takes your place and he takes my place. And I urge you this Christmas, this week, this Advent, and for all of your life to kiss the Son, to submit to him, to treasure him, to trust in him, to delight in him and the story that he is writing for your life. I implore you this Christmas to submit to his gracious, protecting kingship, to come under his refuge. It's the only place where true safety is found. So take refuge in him. There's a king in the manger. So let's rejoice and let's pray. Father, we thank you that you offer not to break us to pieces, but to have your son broken to pieces on our behalf. It's a story that is awe-inspiring and in many ways terrifying that we would give up our lives to your rule. But I pray that we would see that your rule is one that is not coercive, but is full of grace, that is a redemptive rule, that is a self-sacrificial rule. Lord, I pray that we would come under that rule, come under your refuge this morning and this Christmas. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.